let's go into Dr. Reeves' case. This patient is a 48-year-old gentleman who was found to have a PSA elevation of about 9. This was in September of 2006. He saw a urologist and had a prostate biopsy. On the biopsy, 9 out of 12 cores were positive with Gleason grades 4 plus 3, 3 plus 4, and there were two of those biopsies of the nine had 3 plus 3 adenocarcinoma. There was no perineural invasion. There was bilateral lateral involvement. He had a negative bone scan and a negative CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis. What was his lifestyle like, quality like? He was a baggage handler at the airport. Physical activity was very important for him. He was also very, very concerned about complications of treatment, most specifically impotence, but also incontinence. So he was coming to you as a medical oncologist to get another viewpoint? Yes. Occasionally I do this. So Judd, how would you be thinking this situation through? You know, he's a young, healthy man with a PSA of 9. He falls into the D'Amico risk stratification scheme of intermediate risk disease because of the Gleason 4 plus 3 equals 7. So in that sense, you know, as a urologic surgeon, I would tend to lean towards a radical prostatectomy on this gentleman, but also have him seen in our multidisciplinary clinic and have a radiation oncologist talk to him about radiotherapy, either external beam or combined beam plus seeds, or possibly, you know, IMRT plus some duration of hormone therapy. At what age would you start to shift your thinking more towards radiation and hormones? That's an excellent question, and that's a philosophical question. I mean, in my practice, it's generally somewhere in the mid-60s, but other people, particularly radiation oncologists, I recognize have strongly different opinions than I do as a surgeon. William, how would you be thinking this through? I didn't hear his clinical stage. Did he have a palpable mass? Was it extracapsular? No, he did not. Okay. So, I mean, it is true that this person is intermediate, but he's very high intermediate. He's as close to high risk as you can be in the intermediate class. He has a Gleason 4 predominant Mm -hmm. component. He has 9 out of 12 cores, and he's only 48 years old. So I think whether you put this into a D'Amico stratification or a nomogram, he has a very high risk, I think, of having extracapsular disease, disease outside of his prostate. And over time, a single local therapy like surgery or hormones and radiation therapy are expected probably to fail in the majority of patients like this in terms of long-term cure. And because he's so young, I do agree with Judd that surgery probably is the primary modality to control his disease in the prostate. The only problem is still that surgery has been by itself inadequate to cure Mm. the majority of these men, often because they have what we consider to be microscopic metastatic disease. In our institution, we would actually usually order an endorectal coil MRI, and we do this diagnostically and prognostically. It helps us to really stage them better. It is a very spotty test in terms of where you can get it because it's like one of those tests that the radiologists only get good at it if you order a lot, so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But we have found it to be very helpful to look at the anatomy, see if he has seminal vesicle involvement or gross extracapsular disease. And in this type of setting, I do think the standard options include a radical prostatectomy with counseling that he might need subsequent therapy such as radiation or hormones. But I think it's appropriate, too, for him to meet with the radiation oncologist because he has a risk of needing radiation anyway right after treatment. And I'll just finally state that we're doing a clinical trial. In fact, Dr. Mel and I are collaborating on a clinical trial where we're giving chemotherapy followed by radical prostatectomy in men just like this. 
We're using docetaxel and bevacizumab. It builds on a trial we did several years ago where we gave docetaxel followed by radical prostatectomy. The reason we structured it for men like this is that we exactly said the same question. We said, here's a guy who could tolerate the surgery without any problem, but he's not going to be cured with the surgery, we believe, in most situations. What can we do systemically to try to either cytoreduce the disease, but also to kill some of those micrometastatic cancer cells? And because we know hormonal therapy is not able to accomplish those goals, at least alone, we decided to look at chemotherapy alone. There's been a lot of interest in preoperative trials, breast cancer, rectal cancer, other lung cancer even, where one of the main objectives has been to look at the tumor itself, not so much about clinical response. What are you doing in that regard in your study? Well, like the example in breast cancer, where there's quite a long history of doing neoadjuvant chemotherapy in locally advanced breast cancer, we structured our studies to look at pathologic complete response as the kind of primary indicator. Can we eradicate the primary tumor? We know that in breast cancer, for example, that's associated with a better outcome, presumably because it's a measure of whether you're killing those microscopic metastatic cancer cells. In our first study of docetaxel alone, we gave it for up to six months, we did not eradicate tumor in the primaries. We had very aggressive cancers like this, and we did not. But we did exactly what you said, Neil, which is to look at the tumors and to try to get clues as to what the patterns of resistance are. And this has been done in breast and colorectal cancer, where one of the reasons we're doing this study neoadjuvantly is that we learn molecular changes that express a pattern of resistance that we can then retarget. And that was really the rationale behind adding Avastin to this regimen to try to see if we could, in fact, improve delivery of chemotherapy to the primary tumors. Of course, that question of ataxane and bevacizumab is one that's being looked at in a bunch of tumors. And actually, there was a study looked just at docetaxel, an investigator named Jenny Chang, where she was able to describe in the neoadjuvant setting some specific changes that seem to be associated with the treatment. Dr. Reeves, can you talk about your discussions with this man? I had some lengthy discussions with he and his wife, although I only saw him one time, and a lot of this had to do with his concerns. His urologist had recommended that he have a uh, radical prostatectomy with resection of both nerve bundles. So a lot of this had to do with dealing with the problems of impotence and also the problems with incontinence. I should mention that I'm a prostate cancer survivor myself, and so a lot of it had more to do with that kind of input rather than trying to help him make a decision about this. He had, at that point, already planned to be seen. He was going to one tertiary medical center, and he actually had his prostatectomy performed fairly recently at a different tertiary center. So I know he saw several other specialists after myself to discuss this. What's the perspective that you shared with him, and I guess you're sharing with other patients about this? Well, I try to have a very nuts and bolts kind of conversation about what happens, of course, giving the medical rationale for this, but also discussing, you know, what happens just in terms of the surgery and the recovery and what he can expect in terms of incontinence. And, you know, I had to be very frank with this gentleman that if he had bilateral nerve resection, that his impotence chances were approximately 100%. And, you know, we discussed some other measures about this. And it this point in time, that was really his primary concern that he had at that point was trying to avoid that if possible. And I try to, you know, shift the conversation more onto, you know, you've got a bad cancer here that you're going to need to deal with or the rest is irrelevant. When were you diagnosed? June of 2004. 
When you look back, do you think that the information that you had received prepared you for what happened or that maybe it was more difficult or less difficult than you anticipated? It was actually less difficult than I anticipated. You know, as a non-surgeon, my recollections have to do with what I saw during medical school and residency of surgery in general. But I was very impressed. I went to a tertiary care center myself. And And how uh, old are you? I'm 52 now. I was 48 at the time. So I think that was the most difficult part, was dealing with this sort of a why me and why so young type of situation. But, you know, there's a lot of people in this category. I'm curious how that experience has affected you in terms of taking care of cancer patients. The thing that I noticed first, particularly in the two months between the diagnosis and the surgery, was that my patients were really the best help for me, regardless of whether we talked about it or not. Because, you know, you can be feeling overwhelmed by this diagnosis, but then you go in and you see a young mother with metastatic breast cancer, and it really puts things in perspective. So whether they know it or not, my patients really help me. And there is a community atmosphere that sort of evolves here when people know. But after the initial shock, I just kind of came around to the idea that if all these patients I see every day can be this brave and face these diseases, then I can do it too. Judd, I was mentioning that, you know, a couple years ago, we actually had a roundtable of 12 radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, and urologists who either had a personal history of prostate cancer and a couple people, including Judd, who had someone in their family. We spent the whole day talking about just sort of what it's like seeing this from both ends of the spectrum. One of the things that came out of that roundtable was interesting. I remember specifically a urologist from Nebraska who had very low-risk lesion, and he'd been in practice 30, 35 years, who said, I was absolutely convinced for the first six months or a year that I was going to die. He didn't buy any clothes. He was sure he was going to die. And it just the whole concept of once you flip over into being a patient, the fears that come into practice. Actually, the reason you were at that roundtable is because I think it was your father-in-law yes. had prostate cancer. And we wanted to also get the perspective of the family. And I want you to relate your experience. What were your memories of that day, Judd? I mean, it was a very moving experience for two reasons. Number one, I, the thing that caught my attention was the fact that the C word, even though all the people in that room academically knew that many of these prostate cancers were indolent, that had a profound impact, and it scared the hell out of all of them. That struck me. Number two, I was moved. My actual former chief was there, and I don't know if you remember this. He actually broke down because as a urologist himself, faced with prostate cancer and electing to have a radical prostatectomy, he didn't tell his family for a period of weeks to get through a holiday period. And his wife got so mad at him And interestingly, that was one of his biggest regrets, that on his own, he self-thought that his family wouldn't want to know about this till after the holiday. And his wife really got mad at him for that, and he broke down and cried in this session. That was one of his biggest regrets. So those two things made an impact. One of the things that struck me on this case, and again, I agree with everything that William said about if you're going to recommend radical prostatectomy for a gentleman like this who has intermediate to high-risk disease, you know, you want to put the radical prostatectomy in the context of a multidisciplinary approach, which again, I failed to mention that at the beginning, but I truly believe that. And when I would have counseled this man 
It would have been in the context of not stopping with a radical prostatectomy necessarily, just making that my recommendation for the initial step in a multimodality approach. The other thing is with regard to the nerve sparing, I guess it's heresy maybe for me to say this, but if we're going to change the paradigm on radical prostatectomy to have it part of a multidisciplinary approach, and you're dealing with a 48-year-old guy who may need radiation anyway, what's the big deal? Maybe it's not so wrong to do a nerve sparing. Yes, you might have a higher chance of having a positive margin, maybe, but on the other hand, if you're going to counsel him, he might need post-op radiation or some other stuff anyway, maybe that's not so wrong. And I have done that in certain cases of young men, or at least I've gone in there with the hope. I'll say, gosh, you know, you have Gleason 4 plus 3 on this one side. Maybe maybe I won't be able to do it on that side, but gosh, you have Gleason 3 plus 3 on the other side. I'm really going to try to do this nerve sparing at least on one side to try to balance quality versus quantity of life. Judd, I just interviewed John Marshall, who we've worked with for many years in our colorectal cancer series, and he actually discussed right on the interview, as we talked about colon cancer, the fact that his wife has stage three breast cancer, is now getting chemotherapy, and how different his perception was of the family's role and sort of, you know, information transfer within the family. And you know, sort of how that plays into their lifestyle. Any thoughts you want to relay in terms of your experience? Well, my own father passed away when I was 18 years old, and I've been married now 25 years, so I got very close to my father-in-law, and I felt blessed with that. And when he was diagnosed with prostate cancer and subsequently passed away from prostate cancer, it was difficult. And again, I don't want to go too far into the details, but presented with a PSA in the 40s, had a radical prostatectomy and was one of those guys on the bell-shaped curve at the end of the bell-shaped curve who went from positive margins with a radical prostatectomy to death from prostate cancer in 26 months. And that was when? That was in about 1990. He passed away in 1991. You know, and I haven't really thought about this that much, but I think that that's kind of shaped my mindset on multidisciplinary therapy because I brought him actually to my hospital and had him treated by my friends, you know, a medical oncologist who I worked with at the time, Nancy Dawson. And from that, I think, and even before that, we got into the multidisciplinary mindset. But seeing us work together, you know, I think gelled that concept. I'm just kind of curious, Dr. Reeves, how did this experience affect you as it relates to your family? Well, I think that in many ways it brought my wife and I closer. You know, we had this problem to share you know I had to tell her because someone has to drive you home from the biopsy you know? <laughs> 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 but, uh, but uh, you know there were several days there where I had the same sort of life flashing before my eyes and you know wondering whether I was going to be there for Christmas and things like that and I really had to again you know look at the patients in my clinic I have a fair number of hormone refractory prostate cancer patients whose histories began 10 15 years ago, many of them. So that settled me down eventually, but she was great, and I really think it brought us closer having to deal with a difficult problem.